you're hosting Thanksgiving this year, or even somebody's guest, do you love and look forward to that massive roasted bird or... A lot of people don't like turkey anyway, but you, you know, you kind of have to have one, so... I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And Mark Bittman is with us this week to, wait for it, talk turkey, and all the other things on your table. Plus, on this pre-holiday show, we are revisiting some of our favorite stories, the ones we want to share and discuss with our families over a big meal. So we're starting with one of my favorite pieces of reporting from earlier this year about reading and writing and whether students have a constitutional right to literacy. In Michigan, there's a federal lawsuit that claims they do under the 14th Amendment. A group of students and families in Detroit are suing the state with the help of the pro bono law firm Public Counsel. In August, the state argued a motion to dismiss the case, claiming there is no fundamental right to literacy and saying the schools aren't the only ones to blame. It's hot and sticky in Detroit, and Jamarie Hall is hungry. He's 17, tall, absolute megawatt smile, and we're heading out for a bite to eat after his summer job at Wayne State University, boarding up abandoned houses. It makes you feel like you're making a difference in people's everyday lives. It makes people feel safer walking to school or walking to work or something like that. At Grandy's Coney Island, a local fast food joint, he goes for the total teenage boy order. Yeah, so I'll probably just get the bacon cheeseburger with the fries and pop. The food gets packed up, and we find a mostly intact picnic table to sit at. It's in a little park across the street from Hall's house in a neighborhood between seven and eight-mile roads. He just graduated from Osborne Evergreen Academy of Design and Alternative Energy. It's one of the schools accused of failing to provide students with access to literacy. There's been teachers that walked out of the classes saying they can't deal with it because it's hiding the classes. Boiler pipes are broken, so there might be steam coming out the heat or something like that. And then when it's cold outside, it's super cold in the building, so people might have on coats and things like that. Then there's might be rodents or anything in the class. Plus endless substitute teachers and textbooks older than he is that he wasn't allowed to take home. I just feel like I've been cheated. Like, out of my last four years of high school, I feel like I've been cheated. Like, why shouldn't I be able to when there's other students out here that can? Like, it shouldn't it shouldn't be like that. Why do you think it is? Because of the community that we live in, where we were born, where we happen to live. Maybe because of our skin color. Detroit's school system is complicated. Since 1999, the city's schools have been in and out of some form of state control. This fall, Detroit's new school board takes over. Detroit's test scores are consistently some of the lowest in the country. On average, 7% of 8th graders are proficient in reading. Part of what makes this case so important is the state of Michigan's argument. In the motion to dismiss the case, state lawyers argue that the obstacles kids in Detroit face, poverty, lack of parental involvement, domestic violence, and trauma, make it too hard to trace illiteracy to failing public schools. We reached out to the state attorney general's office, and they declined to comment because the litigation is ongoing. They're saying they can't educate people because there's a poverty issue. But for me, they're saying you must negate poverty and educate anyway. That's Shallon Miller. She teaches at Cody Medicine and Community Health Academy, one of the plaintiff schools. We dropped by Miller's house on the west side of Detroit. She was grilling jerk chicken in the backyard for a late lunch. And at Cody, Miller wears a lot of hats. Not only am I a resource teacher at my high school, I'm the testing coordinator. 
I'm the union rep. I'm the senior prom advisor. So I have a home. These aren't just issues at Cody. As of this spring, there were 263 teacher vacancies at Detroit public schools. When you say uncertified teachers can teach in the city but nowhere else, what kind of policy is that? So for your children, certified teachers. For city children, black and brown children, placeholders. All of this has largely been in the state's hands for more than 15 years. I mentioned earlier, that's changing. A city school board regains control of the public schools starting this fall. We're doing everything that we can to remediate some of the adverse effects of decades of educational inequity. That's Ellie Savitt, a senior advisor to Detroit's mayor, Mike Duggan. We need to have a school system that's training Detroiters to get those jobs without the bridge programs that we're providing to be college ready. He wrote a brief in support of the plaintiff's case. Full economic revitalization is not going to be achieved when the illiteracy rates are so high. You know, literacy is foundational. Right now, the city, nonprofit groups, and private companies often have to run classes and programs to close the education gap. One of those companies is DTE Energy, the big local utility. We took the elevator to the 23rd floor to meet with Diane Antishin, Vice President of Human Resources Operations at DTE. A big part of her job is creating programs that help DTE build a workforce. That means internships for high school kids, including from some of the plaintiff schools, and sometimes extra training. We're assessing the young people while they're here. We're, we actually put them through a diagnostic assessment yesterday to understand their literacy and numeracy skills because we want them to be able to continue on to the program that we've developed in partnership with a local college, and we want them to be ready for success when they land there. Antition says three big reasons that Detroiters don't get jobs at DTE are lack of basic literacy or ninth-grade math skills, failed drug tests, and lack of transportation. For kids coming out of Detroit public schools, a little extra help from private industry can make a big difference. When we sat in the park with Jamarie Hall, I asked him about that skills gap and whether the kids in his class had trouble reading. Probably most of them, to be honest. Like, like probably can't sit there and read a real 12th grade novel or something like that. I probably can't. I probably can't even because my last couple of years... I don't think that I, my reading skills have been fans that much. It's not that they're dumb. It's just they haven't been taught the ninth through 12th grade necessities, and it probably goes back before that, too. Hall is headed to community college in Florida this fall. He wants to be an accountant. I asked him if he was scared about the future, maybe going to college and not feeling prepared. He thought for a second and then said that after getting through Osborne, well... I'm ready for anything. I'm not going to let anything stop me. Basically, I know I'm not going to go there and be the smartest in the class or know everything that the professor is talking about, but I know I'm smart enough to ask for help. I know I'm smart enough to use my resources. For now, he's watching this lawsuit. And if plaintiffs win this case, it could change the way public schools all across the country look at literacy.
For more on the lawsuit and its implications, we've got Mike Griffith. He spoke to Marketplace's Adrian Hill about this case and the issue of literacy in Detroit earlier this year. He's a school finance strategist at the nonpartisan Education Commission of the States. And here's what he had to say about the case against Michigan. There's research that shows that it's more difficult to educate students who experience these sort of high poverty issues, including lack of regular food, lack of parental support. But just because it's harder doesn't mean that it's not achievable. There are districts around the country that have high poverty rates, that have low education achievement rates in their area, yet still are able to graduate their students, to get them up to state standards, and to definitely meet that lower benchmark of illiteracy. That brings me to my next question, which is how does Detroit compare to other cities, other states with sort of a similar demographic? In all honesty, a lot of the larger urban districts are struggling. Uh, We would tend to think of comparing Detroit to Philadelphia, Chicago, Cleveland. Some, like Chicago, had some successes for years, but seem to, you know, be struggling a bit more now. They need all the educational resources that kids in suburban and, and rural districts get. But they also need what we tend to call wraparound services, which are all the other services that exist in schools. Once you get to more than half of your kids being low-income or at-risk kids, you need additional resources for those kids. Hmm. Then as you move beyond 50%, the cost per kid then goes up even higher. So Detroit struggles getting their kids to graduate and getting their kids up to state standards and then moving those kids on to either work or some sort of post-secondary education. The hope now is they've hit kind of a stable point or a a little more stable than they've been in a while. Their hope is that they can use the stability to move forward. But what this lawsuit brings forth is this idea that all of these struggles have shown that they're having a difficulty getting their kids even at the lowest bar, which is simple literacy. If the plaintiffs, as this case winds through the courts, and it sounds like there's a long and windy path in front of it, if the plaintiffs are successful at the end and they establish there is a constitutional right to literacy, what would the implications of that be? So this ruling actually could impact schools around the country because this is being tried not in state court but in federal court. That would mean that it's not just Detroit school kids, but all kids around the country, theoretically, if this went all the way to the Supreme Court, that would have the right to to literacy within their schools. Now, granted, that's a pretty low bar. The goal in most states isn't literacy. The goal is to get them up to state standards, which is significantly higher. But what it could mean is it could force states around the country to start putting more resources into high-poverty areas that have a disproportionately high percentage of their kids that are not at full literacy. The courts have said in the past, education is not a federal right. It's not within the U.S. Constitution. That means that it devolves down to the states. So if you end up having this kind of move on to the courts, you have to ask yourself, what are the federal courts going to decide that's going to be different this time? Are they going to say that, well, maybe... Different parts of education aren't protected, but the basic right to literacy is. And that's something that's going to be up to the courts to decide. That was Mike Griffith, a school finance strategist at the Nonpartisan Education Commission of the States, speaking with my colleague, Adrian Hill. We'll bring you an update on this case once a decision has been made. 
it's the week before Thanksgiving, and if you're anything like me, you already have ideas in mind, maybe some prep or family traditions. Mine is a special carrot and onion side dish. But perhaps you're looking for a new recipe or two to liven up your family's table. Maybe even something vegetarian? Mark Bittman is the author of, among other things, How to Cook Everything Vegetarian. Welcome. <laughs> Great to be here. So when we think about holidays, it's so meat-heavy. Is there a good way to rethink meat-heavy holidays, both for like the grumpy person who really wants their meat and the vegetarian who is sick of getting like a gross nut loaf? Well, if I had to say a strategy – which is kind of what you're asking me. Yeah. I would say a two-pronged one is in order. And one is you make a smaller – in this instance, it's going to be turkey. Let's face it. But you don't have to make a 20-pound turkey. I mean we make tur- – we've made turkey so cheap that it's like, oh, I might as well buy a 20-pound turkey. But you don't have to buy a six-pound turkey. And then – I mean obviously depending on the number of people you have. But you think, OK, the centerpiece is still the turkey. For those who want turkey, there's turkey. But it's not like – I mean I'm I'm embracing the turkey which you can't see but uh you know it's not like the table is dominated by the turkey and then you make like awesome side dishes really awesome side dishes that everybody will be happy with and the vegetarians will be ecstatic with or you make a vegetarian main dish along with the turkey or you know in extreme examples you make a vegetarian main dish instead of the turkey a lot of people don't like turkey anyway but you you know you kind of have to have one so all right. You brought a little list with you. What, what were you doing there? What have you got hidden on your laptop? Well, I, you know, I have things that might be more substantial than side dishes, like substantial things that maybe would not take the place of turkey but would provide vegetarian alternatives to turkey. So I have a few of those. Hit it. So one is stuffed squash, which, you know, butternut squash or delicata squash even better Acorn squash, of course, is traditional, but you know any winter squash will do. I like delicata because you can eat the skin and it's the sweetest flesh and it has a beautiful cavity. So you open the squash, you scoop out the seeds and you put in there whatever you want to put in there. It usually is, makes sense to cook the squash halfway or so first so the stuffing doesn't overcook and then you can stuff it with – uh, you know, a tomato sauce or you can stuff it with a, any grain mixture, quinoa mixed with dried cherries and pecans and – or, you know, fresh tomatoes mixed with corn and parsley. I mean chopped squash, of course, can stuff squash. So you can you can do – and you can do meat stuffings if you want. It's not vegetarian any longer. But, you know, stuffed squash is really a beautiful thing. So that's one thing. This is so not Thanksgiving, but you know we are a multicultural society at this point, and I think it should be. And it's one of my favorite dishes ever that has no meat in as a main course, and that is ketchup braised tofu. So ketchup braised tofu. You sort of deep fry or you fry tofu until it's crispy, and then you toss it in like spicy ketchup, garlic, chilies, etc. It's got you know, it's got nothing to do with Thanksgiving. But it's awesome and everybody loves it um, and it's the best use of ketchup that there is. So there's that. Quiches are very nice. You know, quiches or frittatas, big egg dishes are very nice vegetarian central things. Um, enchiladas or tamales are really, really great vegetarian dishes and tamales especially beautiful on a Thanksgiving table. 
And then, you know, if people are really ambitious, stuffed pasta. So fresh ravioli or fresh stuffed shells or um, tortellini for the super, super ambitious, filled with anything. And, and um, it was a very nice, very wintry, Emilian Romanian tortellini that's stuffed with what they call zucca, but essentially pumpkin or butternut squash again mm. or acorn squash. And then served with sage with and sage, butter, yeah. sage, and Parmesan. Yeah, it's like an awesome dish. One of the reasons we have you on is not just to give these ideas. But, you know, we are a, an economic show. And you write a lot about kind of sustainability and thinking about the food chain. And This is called pivoting, I think. It is. It's, <laughs> We're pivoting. I'm a professional. <laughs> yeah, me too. And I am curious in the way – you think about food, kind of how this has shifted. You wrote Vegan Before Six. Do, do people shop and eat with sustainability in mind now more than they used to? Or is that still – are we still talking about a very small circle of people who have the means to do that? Well, most Americans have the means to do it. The, one of the problems in looking at this from a from an income perspective, which yeah. is kind of what you're talking about, is that there is a there's you know unquestionably a portion of society that doesn't have a lot of flexibility in their diets. They have trouble making ends meet. They have trouble putting good food on the table, and and, and that's true. And that's that is an income issue. That is not really a food issue. Hmm. For the other eighty percent or whatever number you choose of the population who can afford to choose what they want to eat at Thanksgiving and at most other times, then sustainability should become a question. And, you know, we've all overheard, especially here in New York where we do overhear other people a lot, we've all heard someone say, well, I, I shop right for my family. I go to Whole Foods or I'm trying to do what's right. I buy organic. And, you know, whether that's the best initial approach is arguable, but it does show that people think about these things now. And I, you know, it goes back to our original conversation. This is seamless in a way. A small turkey makes a lot more sense. And a small turkey that's been raised well, maybe on a farm that you know that's near you, makes the most sense of all. Because the inexpensive bloated turkeys that they sell in the supermarkets for 99 cents a pound or whatever, unbelievably cheap because it's like enough meat for 10 people for four days. I mean, it's incredible have the same issues that all the other poultry commercially raised, well, let's say industrially raised poultry has in this country, which is that they're maltreated and they're not raised sustainably and they're fed corn and soybeans and so on down the line. So, you know, I'd argue go to your farmer's market, go to your nearest farm, buy the best vegetables you can lay your hands on, allow those things to make the most beautiful table you can imagine because they will – and buy a good small bird and use that to to have your centerpiece and to have your turkey at Thanksgiving and to augment all these fabulous vegetable dishes you've made. Am I baking the wrong assumptions into the question I asked you that having, you know, good quality produce or a sustainably raised turkey or what have you um, is more expensive? It is more expensive. Yeah, it is more expensive. On the other hand, you know, a good quality turkey that weighs six pounds may not cost more than a bad quality turkey that weighs 20 pounds. True. So, so I'm just saying eat less meat, eat better meat, eat more expensive and better raised meat. It doesn't address 
And I'm grappling with this because it gets raised every day now, which I think is a good thing, but it doesn't address people of, let's say, limited income. I want to ask you a question that's sort of societal and sort of about this book. You started working on this in 2002, published it in, in 2007. What has changed in the way we think about food in the past decade? I think the thing about people's consciousness being raised is clear. And I think many, many more realize that we eat a half a pound of meat per person per day. That's at least twice as much as we should be eating. So then the question is, are people eating more vegetables? And, you know, the kale craze sort of shows that they're, we're capable of it. We're up against it, you know, because so much of agricultural land, the best agricultural land in this country is used to grow corn and soybeans, which go almost exclusively to biofuel, animal feed, and junk food. And it's very hard to me, very hard to change the agricultural nature of Iowa, for example. You know, when people talk about food waste, I like to say, how about the fact that one of the best regions in the world for growing food is wasted on growing non-food? We have a long way to go. There's a, there are cultural changes happening, but we need structural changes as well, and those are not happening nearly as quickly. Mark Bittman, thank you very much. It's been nice talking with you. Got any good Thanksgiving recipes? Share them with us. They do not even have to be vegetarian. Get in touch at weekend at marketplace.org or on Facebook by searching Marketplace Business News. Or on Twitter, we're at Marketplace WKND. Speaking of eating your vegetables, we are looking back on an interview we did with the CEO of a company that is going all in on vegan food, Veggie Grill. It's a fast, casual vegan chain, and the company is expanding out of the West Coast and into the Midwest, scouting new locations in airports and on college campuses. I sat down with CEO Steve Healy last year to talk about the business of selling vegan food to a country that eats a whole lot of meat. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. You all serve, you know, fast, casual, vegetarian food, and, and right now you're on the West Coast. How do you plan to expand nationally? Our plans are to go outside of the West Coast. We're, we're up and down the West Coast today from San Diego up through Seattle. But over the next few years, we do want to bring our brand to the East Coast and throughout the country, Midwest for sure and East Coast for sure. I mean, do you, do you think that the rest of the country is ready for a vegan chain? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's uh, the, the growing trend around vegetarian food and eating a veggie diet or plant-based diet or vegan, whatever, however you'd like to describe it, is a growing trend, especially in big cities. There's a lot of our core consumers clustered in those big cities. When you, when you think about your consumers, who are they? Well, interestingly enough, yeah, we do attract vegans and vegetarians, but about 80% of our guests don't consider themselves vegan or vegetarian. They're what we call veggie positive. And so these veggie positive guests are guests. Veggie positive. Veggie positive, which right. means that these are folks that are mindful about how they eat, and they've made a conscious decision 
to move veggies, grains, fruits, and nuts, the center of their plate, and other things uh, to the outside of the plate. So they could be flexitarian, pescatarian. They could be paleo. They could just decide that, hey, I don't want to eat red meat. I want to eat more veggies. And uh, I think intuitively people know that eating more veggies is good for you. Well, this sort of brings up this interesting marketing question, right? Like, are, are you marketing around, hey, we have great food, or are you marketing around, actually, this stuff is vegan? Because, you know, when you advertise a, a remoulade, you're not saying it's a vegan remoulade. Like, sure. You seem to be leaning more toward just, hey, this is the food. We're a vegan concept and always will be in. I think our, our vegan and vegetarian guests understand that and they depend on us for that and they know they can come to Veggie Girl no matter what they eat. It's going to be free of meat and dairy and, and all those uh, products that define us as vegan. But I think where we come from is we start out with what do our guests want to eat today? And so we come at it from the food first and then what we do is, is we engineer it so that it's uh, vegan. So, you know, we do a lot of product development. We do four seasonal menus a year. So we're always looking for what are the interesting flavors and foods that, you know, the, our guests are looking for and how can we innovate and be creative and bring them things that maybe are really surprising that they didn't know that they could get at a vegetarian restaurant. When you think about positioning yourselves, are, are you sort of aiming for the, you know, Panera slice of the market or the McDonald's slice of the market? Because they're very different things. Very different. You know, McDonald's, I think, is mass market. So this is food that's inexpensive and you can appeal to a, a very, very, very broad audience. I think, you know, what Panera's done is they have broad appeal, but it's more for a more discerning guest that wants more of a fast, casual experience. I think, you know, we consider ourselves what we call polished, fast, casual. Our food, it's not easy food to produce. So a lot of yeah. times it's on the edge of chef-driven. We do have a lot of uh, things in our menu that are very familiar to people, things like our Santa Fe crispy chicken sandwich. But from a, a quality perspective, starting with quality of ingredients and freshness and everything's made from scratch and we don't make the food till you order it. You know, we're aiming at, at more of the discerning guests that, you know, is very food conscious and wants high quality food, but they also want things that are familiar. So people can come into Veggie Grill and get an order of buffalo wings. And it's that great flavor that you expect from buffalo wings. But on a different occasion, that guest might order a quinoa power salad, which is very veggie centric. You know, I think we're sort of redefining a genre around our food. You just raised $22 million in a recent funding round. What's the pitch you're making to investors about why it's a good bet to put money behind expansion? Well, actually, a lot of our investors really understand trend. And the trend around plant-based eating, especially with, the, with millennials and uh, you know, the, rising, the rising tide of millennial spending, and you know, vegan and plant-based and all that which used to be on the fringe, is now going mainstream. So there's a lot of sort of critical mass going on around this movement to eat more plant-based items. You know, I think over the next couple of decades, eating this type of a diet, eating this type of food is going to be more mainstream. 
than probably a, our carnivorous diet today. But you don't put that into your pitch to diners, really. We don't. I mean, we want to be all-inclusive. So sometimes you can attach labels to your food that people can misinterpret. So if, if you go to market and say we're vegan, that for some folks, if you're vegan or vegetarian, you can say, wow, that's great. Other people that maybe haven't tried veggie grill or, or don't really understand our food might see vegan and go, oh, vegan. Hmm. <laughs> you know, some of that vegan stuff I've tried doesn't taste very good. Or, you know, they, they tend to think about brown rice and steamed broccoli as vegan food or raw food. And so we, we, we call it veggie-centric because we don't want to exclude those folks that they just want to eat more veggies and they want great flavor and great food and they don't want labels attached to who they are and how they eat. Part of your expansion plan uh, centers around airports and university campuses. Why, why those places? Well, actually, universities, we've been getting a lot of inquiries because the student population today has a very different perception of, of veggie-based food, and it's actually based on demand. So you have these student populations that are saying, we want veggie options. That's a big interest there. And then in airports, I think today's traveling consumer, you know, they, they're kind of tired of, and I, I run into this myself when I travel, trying to find something that is better for you and is flavorful in an airport can be challenging. So we think there's an opportunity to go into um, airports because those, those, those folks travel a lot. Steve Healy, CEO of Veggie Grill, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this week we're looking back on some of our favorite stories. 2017 has been quite a year for data hacks, none more so than the Equifax breach. The information of more than 143 million people was compromised, so it gave us the chance to talk about ID theft. I'm Jeffrey O'Mara. I'm here in Manhattan. I'm an actor. I've lived here for 10 years. And about five years ago, I was the victim of identity theft. It all started when he got an envelope in the mail from Best Buy. And there was a credit card inside in his name, which he hadn't applied for. So Amur calls him up. And they said, well, someone applied for it um, at a Best Buy in New Jersey um, under your name with all of your information, including your social security number. And they bought a TV at the cash register in this Best Buy in New Jersey, which is strange since I live in Manhattan. Amara says, whoa, convinces them it wasn't him. They agree to wipe it from his name. I said, great, thank you. And they say, go file a police report. And he tries, but his local precinct won't file the report because his money was reimbursed, no crime to solve. And I was thinking, well, of course there's a crime to solve. The perpetrator's still on the loose out there, and there's probably video footage of him checking out at, at this Best Buy in New Jersey. But they didn't want to go down that route. Fast forward a few weeks and Jeffrey Amura's phone rings. It's Chase Bank and they say someone tried to take $2,000 from his account but didn't know the account number. So they turned him away. I'm thinking this must be the same guy who opened up the credit card. 
and now I'm starting to get a little freaked out because he knows he knows way too much about me. So he runs to his local Chase to sort things out. And while he's there, someone tries to withdraw money at six different branches. On the seventh time, he changed his tactics and he, he wrote a check to my name and was able to cash it and actually withdrew $2,000 from my checking account. So Chase sorts it out, reimburses Amura, changes his various numbers. All my money's safe so far. A month and a half later, another phone call. You can see where this is going. This time, it's Verizon. They say his bill for his new account is due. Omura explains what's going on. And they said, well, we can't close this account until you file a police report and send us that documentation so that we know that this was a crime. Otherwise, you will be held accountable for this $1,400 charge on this, on this brand new Verizon account. Ah, uh, yes. Remember the police report? No, I don't have a police report because I tried to make a police report and the NYPD turned me away. He goes back and a detective says they can't just give him a report. Once a report's filed, they're obligated to try to solve it. Seems like a pretty good policy. In this particular situation, I didn't need them to solve the crime. I really just needed the paperwork so I could fax it into Verizon close that account and make sure I was not liable for this $1,400 charge. The detective says, fine, we'll get a report, but we need to investigate first. Probably about two months later, he finally calls me back and says, we've closed the case. We have not solved the case, but here's your police report. He sends it to Verizon, gets his money back, and yes, it's over. Omura now has extra security on everything. His bank accounts, tax returns, no problem since. But if all this trouble can happen if someone nabs your social security number, why are those nine numbers tied to everything? Because big, bad, and in some cases lazy businesses hijacked it. That's Neil O'Farrell, head of the Identity Theft Council. He says that since the U.S. doesn't have a national ID... And because it was really the only universal individual identifier, in particularly in the United States, it became quickly hijacked by the financial community as a way to determine who you are and therefore what your credit history is like. But nowadays we have data breach after data breach, which means your social may not be secret. The financial industry particularly has always regarded identity theft as a cost of doing business. New technology could be a game changer, from fingerprints to facial scans, biometric technology sits in our pockets, on our phones. Hi, Apple, looking at you, and surrounds us every day. I think the changes in the future will focus around stopping the thieves using stolen information less than stopping them from stealing it. To talk about that, we have Brian Ichikawa on the show. He's a biometrics expert who works with businesses and governments. What's a better way to identify ourselves instead of using a social security number? I'm sort of of the school, like, well, the fact that we have that SSN out there being used everywhere, that's sort of life, right? And, and you know, we can change that identifier, but all we've done is change the identifier. I think we need to move sort of beyond that and say we need to protect the infrastructure as a whole. Does having a conversation about using your fingerprint or retina scan or whatever it is, is that the conversation to to have? If we use a different identifier and then that gets compromised, then what? I mean, have we fixed anything? I don't think so. When you work with a company or a government, what do you tell them to do differently? 
There's a responsibility that corporations and government agencies have in protecting personal information. And uh, at, at the minimum, all that data should be highly encrypted. Now, there's a, a layer of overhead, of cost, and that's probably the reason why it's not a ubiquitous practice. And so, you know, your, your data has been compromised, um, and it's out there already. Well, so let's spin forward a few years. I mean, we're already seeing airlines and, say, the U.S. government uh, pilot some different programs where you can use biometrics at check-in or you can use your global entry card. Um, are, are, we, are we moving toward a world where biometrics are more incorporated into what we do for security purposes or is that just as vulnerable? If you can improve the way you authenticate yourself, if you can improve the way you say, you can prove you are who you claim to be, that's going to help a lot. You know, I tell all my friends and family that whenever you have additional security features that are available to you, take advantage of them. Those are, those are the little things that we as individuals can do to help make ourselves more secure. Who pays for all this? If a company has your information and they need to protect it, then they need to pay for the additional infrastructure associated with that. Now, how far do you carry that? For example, you know, let's say my bank wants to implement a additional security feature saying, you know, well, we can we can make this more secure by adding your fingerprint to this. Okay. Then who's going to pay for the fingerprint reader? So maybe right now that becomes an option. So me as as an individual may say, I will pay for that fingerprint reader. The bank pays for the infrastructure to make that reader work in their system. So we both pay for that, right? And and maybe if I'm a high-value customer, the bank goes, you know, we'll pay for that fingerprint reader because you have more assets, you have, you're have you a higher-value customer, and, and we'll, we'll cover that one for you. Does that risk exacerbating inequality where security becomes a luxury item? Well, I would hope not. I mean, security and privacy are almost rights, right, in, in today's world. You cannot have to be rich in order to be able to afford higher degrees of security or privacy. Brian Nichikawa, thank you so much for talking with us. You're very welcome. And if you have concerns about ID theft and how you can keep yourself safe, you can find more details on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. In a wildly different genre, Instagram is very green these days. And I mean, with plants. Accounts devoted to houseplants and gardening have hundreds of thousands of followers. And one company is cashing in on the hipness of houseplants among millennials. The Sill started out life as a local business in New York City and now ships plants nationwide. Hi, my name is Eliza Blank, and I am the founder and CEO of The Sill. The reason why I started The Sill was really to fill a void in my own life. So I had moved to New York City from Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a very green town. I moved to New York to attend NYU, and as an 18-year-old, was really struck by the lack of greenery in New York. I felt like there was a real void in my life. 
And in fact, I grew up with a lot of houseplants at home. My mother is from the Philippines. And so she grew up climbing mango trees in her backyard. And when she moved to the States, she made it a point not only to be an avid gardener, but to fill my childhood home with houseplants. I knew entering into this business that it was a sizable market. So we know Americans are spending billions of dollars on houseplants, pots, and accessories each year. But they just weren't able to do so in a way that mimicked their day-to-day life now. So the garden center industry really hasn't changed in the eyes of the consumer for nearly 100 years. I went into this knowing that this was a business. It wasn't going to just be a hobby. It wasn't going to just be solving my own problem. I saw this as a problem that many Americans face that I wanted to tackle. Today for us, because of the way that we've built the brand, we really found our niche to be with millennials. So about 44% of our customers are ages 25 to 34, which is really great because we know that the fastest growing segment of gardeners happens to be millennials. And we know that we can speak to them in their language because nobody else is. And that's a real advantage to us. Millennials are the ones who are, you know, they're moving to the cities, they're living in, in apartments or smaller homes. Plants offer a really low cost way to decorate or maybe to spruce up your home or maybe to change things up a little bit. And we're certainly seeing a ton of inspiration on social media, whether it's Pinterest or Instagram. Millennials love to share, and I think that's also been a compelling piece of our business is that we sell plants and plants are beautiful and everybody wants to share pictures of their plants. It's that combination of offering, you know, the right size plant, the right price plant, the right types of plants that are kind of on trend and to an audience who otherwise spends nearly 90% of their life indoors and the majority of their day in front of a screen. Okay, I'm taking you to my favorite plant. Right now, we're standing in front of our shelves in the store, which we have mounted pretty high up. And the reason is is that we sell a lot of plants that trail. So one of my all-time favorite plants is the philodendron. What I love about it is it produces these beautiful green heart-shaped leaves, and it grows really quickly. It was always an inspiration for me for the business because, of course, we want to grow the business quickly. And it's also an incredibly resilient plant. You pretty much can't kill it. It will suffer tremendously and it still won't die. So I love that idea of of always growing and really being able to sort of visually see that for yourself. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. We all have a financial life, but what does that look like when you're in the public eye? That is where the Marketplace Quiz comes in, when authors, musicians, and other creative people share their thoughts on money and work. My name is Michael Voltaggio. I'm a chef in Los Angeles, California. I have a couple restaurants here. Inc. is the main one, and uh, I occasionally play myself on television, too. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... Dinner at one of my restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> what is it by you? Wow. Uh, I am a car fanatic, so I guess I would say that. Uh, but more importantly, I would say a plane ticket. Um, just just to, to go somewhere and experience something different. If you weren't a chef in your next life, what would your career be? 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be a rodeo clown, and I have no idea why. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You know, you've got this crazy animal and the cowboy riding it. No one ever gave credit to the rodeo clown, like the guy that was out there, like putting himself out there to like save the cowboy's life. Like the rodeo clown gets <laughs> to save the cowboy. I mean, how cool is that? The cowboy is usually the one that saves everyone else. Is cooking ever like being a rodeo clown? I think in a lot of cases it is, yeah, for sure. Um, there's, it's very chaotic. Uh, there's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, before the, the, the kitchen walls came down and, and everyone was sort of uh, in front of the audience, you know, you were sort of the rodeo clown back there. You're the guy that wasn't really getting the credit. Um, you were just that weird person that was in the kitchen making this food. The work was being done, but the praise was happening on the other side of the wall. What's the hardest part of your job that nobody knows about? I think the hardest part about my job today is balancing everything, uh, being more than what I signed up to be. I signed up to be a cook, uh, eventually wanted to be a chef, but I didn't sign up to be a CEO, uh, a president of a company, a television personality. And so it's figuring out how to do all of those things that I was never really educated to do. When did you realize that being a cook or a chef could be an actual career for you? And it's the only job that I've ever had. Uh, since I was 15 years old, I started working in restaurants. Um, I'm, I'm 37 years old now, and, and I've, uh, I've only been paid uh, to, to really be a chef, um, it's, or, or a cook for that matter. Understanding that there was something more to working in the food service industry than just working in the food service industry. I remember like when I told my parents, you know, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to, you know, go to this culinary apprenticeship. Or I'm going to work, you know, in restaurants. And it was like, oh, yeah, I kind of figured you'd end up in the food service industry. And now it's like, wow, we're really proud of you. So there's this kind of, you know, we didn't make it that way. And I, and, and I remember seeing the executive chefs of the places that I worked and thinking like, yeah, one day I'm going to have a decent job. I didn't think that I would have such an amazing career. What was your first job? My first job, I was a busboy at a Holiday Inn Hotel in Frederick, Maryland, and my brother was the sous chef in the kitchen. I, I wanted to work in the kitchen, and I remember the other sous chef and my brother said, okay, come in tomorrow dressed in a, in a cook's uniform with the apron, the hat, the chef jacket, the whole thing, and uh, we'll start you in the kitchen on the garmage, which is the cold station. So I show up the next day, I'm all excited, I get up early, I get to work, I'm 15, 16 years old, and I'm dressed like a chef. Well, Brian and the other sous chef were both off, and the executive chef was there, and he looked at me, and he just basically said, what, what is this, effing Halloween? Like, what are you supposed to be? They never told him that I was coming in, not as a busboy the next day, but as a, as a cook in the kitchen. And so he just, from that day on, uh, mopped the floor with me. But clearly, it was in some way inspiring to you. I didn't love so much the... Maybe I did love the drama that was in the kitchen. Maybe there was a little bit of me that really enjoyed the... Not the yelling and screaming, but the intensity of it. But then when the creative process was exposed to me and I could see, like, wait a second, I can take all of these ingredients over here and I can make my own dish out of it if I want to and I can sell it in the restaurant tonight and that's okay. That empowerment at that age and, and being able to experience that and then have people hopefully say that they enjoyed it, for me, was one of the most uh, inspiring things I've ever experienced in my life. What's your most prized possession? I collect a lot of cookbooks, um, and I know that's an obvious one, but it helps me a lot, especially uh, last year I was cooking in a lot of different countries, and I would show up and try and understand the cuisine there, and so the first thing I would do is go to a bookstore and try and find a cookbook that was written in English. I now have hundreds of cookbooks. What's something that everyone should own, no matter the cost? I think everyone should probably own a Vitamix blender. <laughs> that piece of equipment is in every single professional kitchen around the world, and even if the plugs are a little bit different in different places, you can't do without that blender. 
Do you remember the first set of knives you ever bought? I remember the first set of knives that I... Well, my mom bought me a set of global knives, and I remember uh, because there was a knife that I really wanted, and it was sort of a Deba style, which is like the Japanese fish butchering style knife. And I really, really wanted that knife. And so my mom purchased it for me. But then later on, I learned that uh, you can't give a knife as a gift. There's supposed to be a transaction that takes place because if you give a knife as a gift, apparently it cuts off your friendship. And so every time I gift a knife to someone, and I do this with my cooks a lot because a lot of companies send me knives and things like that, or I buy myself new knives. I'll sell my knives that are, you know, they're not cheap knives. They're, they're fairly expensive, several hundreds of dollars. And, and I'll sell them for like a dollar to my cooks or a quarter. So uh, anytime somebody gives you a knife as a gift, make sure you give them a coin, a dollar, something in return for that. And make sure there's a transaction so it doesn't cut off the friendship. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.